Friends, as we continue to worship our Lord together, let's now give attention to his word. So please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11. Let's ask the Lord to minister to our hearts as we hear his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would finish the work of new creation that you have begun in us. Sanctify us through your word so that one day we will stand pure and spotless in the glory of your presence. Change us from one degree of glory to another as we sit under the proclamation of your truth and marvel at your wisdom and love. Bless our congregation, O Lord so that we might be a reflection of your triune glory as we proclaim the gospel and minister to one another in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What image pops up in your mind when you hear the word spiritual? Do you imagine a a mystic with a long white beard seated under a tree maybe in a yoga pose. Perhaps the word spiritual conjures up a particular environment, like a quiet room with dimmed lights, with candles and incense, creating the right mood. Or maybe the word spiritual brings to your mind an experience you had, like the day when you felt that you and the Lord really connected when you had your quiet time. What goes through your mind when someone in the church asks you, how are you doing spiritually? What is that all about? What exactly are they asking? Well, the first time that we encounter this word in 1 Corinthians is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. So look at chapter 2, 12 to 16. Let's do a little Bible study and look at a couple of verses. Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this, this meaning the things that God has freely revealed to us, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, those words taught by the Spirit to those who are spiritual, those who have received the Spirit who is from God. The natural person, that's the opposite of the spiritual person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, which are the spiritual truths, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you need the Spirit's help to understand the Spirit's words. These people don't have the Spirit, so they cannot understand the Spirit's words. The spiritual person judges all things, so he views everything through the lens of Scripture, but is himself to be judged by no one, meaning that unbelievers have no spiritual capacity to judge the actions of a believer. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Answer, no one. But here's the wonder of God's grace. But we, we who have the Spirit, have the mind of Christ. Or jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. When some of these Corinthians who were being divisive over their leaders and were sinning, to them Paul says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So they were behaving immaturely by not acting in accordance with the wisdom of the word. Jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, referring to the teaching, spiritual words or truths, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 4. When Paul speaks of the people of Israel, 
He says this, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. These blessings were provided by God the Holy Spirit. Friends, biblically speaking, to be spiritual is to possess the Spirit of God. It is to be a Christian, someone who has been made alive by the Holy Spirit and united to the risen and exalted Christ through faith. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 8 verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is a new covenant blessing that we get to experience because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So Jesus describes the coming down of the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost as the promise of the Father. You see that in Acts 1.4. It is through the Spirit that we receive adoption as sons. In Christ, the blessing of Abraham, the promise that God made to Abraham, comes to the Gentiles. It is fulfilled. How is it fulfilled? As we receive the Spirit through faith. That's Galatians 3.14. Which is why, without the finished work of Christ in the history of redemption, there can be no Pentecost. There can be no Pentecost. Pentecost marks the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and the inauguration of the age to come. This is why Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, if I do not go away, if I don't finish my work, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the coming of the Holy Spirit to abide with us is how we receive the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. To have the Holy Spirit is to have the life of the ascended Christ in us. Which is why Jesus says in John 14 verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He just said he's going away. I will not leave you as orphans. I myself will come to you. This is reiterated in Matthew 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Not with us in his incarnate state, but with us now through his spirit. But the church at Corinth didn't understand this fully. There was trouble brewing because of a group of people who had the wrong idea of what it meant to be truly spiritual. And this is because some of them were fascinated with whatever their culture was fascinated with. Corinthian culture placed a high premium on speaking abilities. And so some members who had speaking gifts began to boast in these gifts for their own purposes. They thought that to have those particular gifts meant that they were extra special. They were extra important, elite. They were the ones who were truly spiritual. You see, their cultural values were influencing their understanding of what it meant to be spiritual. And this was not surprising since they had the kind of gifts that their culture admired. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapters 12 all the way to chapter 14, it does seem like the Corinthians were fascinated with the gift of tongues which is why Paul spent so much time addressing the gift of tongues and even explaining why the gift of prophecy is far better than uninterpreted tongues. Why? Because of prophecy that is understood builds up the church. And so chapters 12 to 14 are geared towards helping the Corinthians understand what it means to be spiritual. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts and how Christ-like love ought to regulate how we use these gifts in public worship. And so in this passage, Paul begins his teaching by responding to something that they had asked him about spiritual gifts. And here's what we can learn from these verses. Number one, a spiritual person 
understands and affirms the Lordship of Christ. A spiritual person understands and affirms the Lordship of Christ. Number two, spiritual gifts are many and they are given to us by our triune God. Spiritual gifts are many and they are given to us by our triune God. And number three, spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the church. They are given for the edification of the church. A spiritual person, first and foremost, is somebody who understands and affirms the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that Paul is addressing a new series of questions from the Corinthians because of that phrase, now concerning, now concerning the betrothed, 1 Corinthians 7.25. Uh, now concerning food offered to idols, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Now the word gifts has been added by the ESV translators. This phrase can simply be translated now concerning the spiritual or what comes from the spirit. You see, these Corinthians had spent so much time arguing about the gifts that they forgot about the real gift the Holy Spirit himself. Brothers, how do you think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Do you think of these grace gifts as a thing? You know, like your own personal power bank? Something that the Holy Spirit gives to you so that once you have it, you've received it, he no longer has it because he gave it to you, as though it's an object to be handed over? You now have your own peripheral device that you can plug and play. How do you think about the spiritual gifts? The gifts of the Spirit are simply this. The gifts of the Spirit are the different ways God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, works and makes himself known in the life of a Christian. And so Paul wants to instruct the Corinthians about how, the, how God the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. And he says, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. And that sounds like chapter 10, verse 1, doesn't it? When he addresses their overconfidence by warning them from the past, from Israel's history. But now he reminds them of their own history, their own personal past when they were not Christians. Look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Paul says, I want you to think about your past experience, how you lived, how you worshipped. Think about the time when you were pagans. That word that is translated as pagans is the word ethne. This is the word we often translate as Gentiles or nations. I think it's very striking that he's speaking to a church largely composed of redeemed Gentiles, and he's saying, remember when you were Gentiles. And I think this is reflective of how Paul views the church. Your identity is no longer Jew or Gentile, but Christian. However, Paul is not making a point about their ethnicity. No, he's reminding them of their former religious past. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray, you were deceived, you were misled. Misled towards what? To mute idols, he says. Idols that are voiceless, dumb. These are false gods. And then he says, however you were led. Meaning you were led in some way or the other. You were deceived. And you know that, he says. See, Paul here uses the language of the Old Testament to describe these false gods as mute. In the Old Testament, one of the ways the Lord distinguishes himself from the false gods of the nations is that the true God, Yahweh, speaks and that he is the creator of all things. Listen to the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, verses 18 to 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it. 
a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Get this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Why does Paul want to make this point? Well, for one thing, notice the contrast. Look at the text. Notice the contrast between mute idols and the one speaking in verse 3. This refers to a person speaking, but it is no doubt a speaking gift that is in view because this is the subject of chapters 12 to 14. Our God speaks through his people. But the reason he makes this point is to arrive at a particular conclusion. When you were non-Christians, he says, you were deceived. Your former religious experiences, they are not going to help you in understanding how God the Holy Spirit works. Look at verse 3. You were deceived, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul says the diagnostic test of a spiritual person is not merely his speaking, but what he speaks. What he or she says about Jesus. No one speaking in the Spirit of God, meaning speaking by the power of the Spirit, again, probably referring to a speaking gift, no one ever says Jesus is accursed, anathema. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that someone in the church claiming to be a Christian would ever say such a thing. But perhaps there was someone who did. And Paul is addressing that. But what is more important to see here is that Paul is making a contrast with what someone speaking through the agency of the Holy Spirit would definitely say and would definitely not say. What they would do by the Spirit is make this confession that Jesus is Lord. The word Lord is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Yahweh. Imagine that, that Jesus is Lord. That's a stunning confession, especially in light of the very first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. The confession is Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Those who have the Spirit of Christ are enabled to affirm his divinity and his lordship over their lives. See, Paul is not merely talking about the mouthing of these words, just the ability to say those words. No, this sort of declaration in the first century meant more than a mere confession. It was a declaration of theological conviction and personal allegiance to the one true king. Paul is saying that those who are inspired by the Spirit will speak and act in ways that demonstrate that Jesus is Lord. In other words, Christ will be glorified in what they speak and how they live. Friends, if you are not a Christian, then you should know that the Bible teaches that your eternal destiny hangs on this one question. Just this one question. Who do you say Jesus is? This is the question that the Jews in Jesus' day could not answer. This is the question that the disciples often stumbled over, especially when they saw Jesus calm the storm and raise the dead. Friends, there are many people in this world who believe that Jesus was a mere teacher, a good man even, perhaps even a prophet. But there is only one book that unashamedly 
proclaims that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that is this book, the Bible, which is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And the Bible tells us that we are sinners, people who have ignored what God has said about Himself. We have turned to our own ideas about God and ourselves. And do you know what Scripture calls that? Scripture calls that exchanging the truth for a lie. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have dishonored our Creator and our Lord, and for that we stand condemned. But God demonstrated His love for sinners in this way, that He sent His Son, the eternal Word, who entered our world and took on flesh and died in the place of sinners for all those who would repent and believe in Him. Through the work of His Spirit, God opens the eyes of those who have been deceived, who have been misled, and He leads them into the truth about Himself. This is what Jesus accomplished. He died on the cross and He rose from the dead so that sinners could be forgiven of all their truths, given new hearts by His Spirit, and reconciled to God. There's only one true God and He has made Himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to know the truth, if you no longer want to be deceived and misled, call on the name of Jesus. Repent of your sins. Put your trust in Him. Turn to Christ, and you will be saved from the wrath to come. Beloved, the work of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to this truth. To bear witness to the truth. Jesus said in John 15, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 13 to 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, says Jesus. The Spirit glorifies Christ. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and speak it to you and declare it to you. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to the revelatory gifts of the Spirit, there are two things you need to understand. Number one, we must understand that He speaks, God speaks through His people by the power of the Spirit what is true. The content of what is being spoken through tongues or prophecy is the infallible truth of God's revelation. Those who advocate the continuation of the revelatory gifts for today, they say that prophecy in the New Testament is fallible. That is, it is, it is something that the Spirit spontaneously brings to your mind, but it's not infallible and authoritative like Old Testament prophecy. Beloved, remember that the Spirit is the Spirit of what? Of truth. His declarations are Christological. There is no reason to redefine prophecy as a gift that includes both truth and error. Plus, when you read the New Testament, it's very clear that what Christ has accomplished is far superior. The new covenant is superior to the old. Why would God give his new covenant church a prophetic gift that is inferior? Number two, when it comes to the revelatory gifts of the Spirit, we must understand that God speaks through his people what God has chosen to speak in these last days. 
He speaks of the fullness of God's revelation concerning the person and the work of His Son. All revelation that was given by God by the means of these revelatory sign gifts in the apostolic age had one purpose and one purpose only, to bear witness to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Merely possessing a speaking gift or even a spectacular sign gift isn't necessarily indicative that someone is genuinely saved. You know that. On the day of judgment, there will be many who say to Jesus, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's nothing spiritual about you because there's nothing holy about you. There's nothing holy about you because you do not obey my word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. In one sense, this should not surprise us. Because in Mark 13, 22 and 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, we are promised, we are promised that in the last days we will see many false prophets who will perform false signs and wonders by the power of Satan. So that shouldn't surprise us. But those who confess Christ as Lord, those who possess His Holy Spirit, will be marked by the obedience of faith, doing the will of the Father, carrying out His redemptive purposes for His church. And beloved, we cannot understand these realities if we use the wrong lenses. These Corinthians did not rightly understand what it meant to be spiritual, nor did they understand the purpose of spiritual gifts because they had put on the wrong glasses. They had put on the glasses of pagan culture instead of putting on the glasses of Scripture. You see, they thought that the Spirit was working only when the speaking gifts were in operation. When people spoke in tongues. And so this gave those who had who had those gifts, it gave them a sense of importance over the rest. Some even thought that they did not need the other members who did not have these speaking gifts. But Paul corrects them by telling them that there were many spiritual gifts that God had given to his church, and he himself was empowering every member. And that brings us to our second point. Spiritual gifts are many and they are given to us by our triune God. Look at verses 4 to 6. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. When he says that there are varieties of gifts, he means that there are different distributions or different ways that the Spirit works in the life of a Christian, but all that working is a gracious activity. The word that is translated as gifts is the word charismaton, which means it's a grace gift. And so in that sense, we're all charismatics. And the worst thing you can do with a grace gift is to see it when it's operational in your life, twist it and make it all about yourself. And that undermines the very message of the cross. It undermines the very meaning of the word grace. But this also tells you that these gifts have to do with our salvation, specifically the sanctification of the body of Christ by His grace. It's a grace gift. Do you remember how Paul recognized that the grace of God was at work in the lives of these Corinthians? Chapter 1. By seeing that in every way they were enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge that they were not lacking in any gift. 1 Corinthians 1, 6-7. Now there are varieties of gift, but the same Spirit. Why does he say that? 
because he wants them to know that the spirit who gave them those speaking gifts is also the same spirit who gives gifts to others. No one is more spiritual than the other. All Christians have the spirit, not just a select few. Certain kinds of gifts are not a marker of superior status. They're given by the same spirit. There are varieties of service, he says. The word is diakonon. It's where we get the word deacon or ministry from. But the same Lord. He means the Lord Jesus. No matter what gift we are given, it is the same Lord Jesus Christ whom we are serving. And as we saw last week, we serve him by ministering to one another. There are varieties of activities. That word activities can also be translated as workings. It's the same word that is translated as empowers in verse 6 and verse 11. The Spirit works in different ways, but it is the same God, God the Father, who empowers, who works them all in everyone. You see, Paul's point here is not to make a technical distinction between grace gifts and service and activities, No, his point is to teach us that our triune God is the one who is behind our giftings. There is a Trinitarian design to these grace gifts, which means they serve a Trinitarian purpose. They serve a Trinitarian purpose. You see, most Christians, when they think about the role of spiritual gifts in God's great plan of redemption, they think about spiritual gifts in this way. They think that God the Father chose us from before the foundations of the world. The Son took on flesh, and He redeemed us. He purchased us on the cross. He did this to save us. And then the Spirit regenerates us. He causes us to be born again. And then, because the Holy Spirit is so awesome... And because he wants us to have an awesome, power-filled Christian life, as a bonus, because the Father and the Son forgot about this, as a bonus, he gives us spiritual gifts. And that's why sometimes our charismatic friends will slanderously say, oh, you believe that the sign gifts have ceased, therefore you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Brothers, look at the text. That's not the way we are meant to understand the purpose of the gifts. The church father Athanasius of Alexandria said, the spiritual gifts are given in the Trinity. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God who empowers them all in everyone. Beloved, the works of God, all the works of God are triune. This is the doctrine of the inseparable operations of the Trinity. As Augustine famously said, as the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are inseparable, so do they work inseparably. They work as one because they are one. One in essence, will, power, and glory. And yet we see that in their unified and harmonious purposes, each person of the Trinity possesses a distinct mode of action within their oneness. The Father sends. The Son is sent. The Spirit does not take on flesh. Instead, He proceeds from both the Father and the Son and unites us to the Son. There is unity in diversity in the triune Godhead. And because of the inseparable operations of the Trinity, to solely single out and focus on the Spirit without any regard to the Father and the Son and their plan for the church in redemptive history is to have a very impoverished view of the gifts. But if we understand what the purposes of our triune God are in redemptive history, and that they always work together to accomplish their will. 
When we understand what the purposes of our triune God are in redemptive history, then we can understand why the miraculous manna ceased when the Israelites reached the promised land. Joshua 5.12 It's not that God could not do any miracles anymore, but that he wanted to bless his people in a different way by working through ordinary means as his people ate the produce of the land. The manna served its purpose at a particular point in redemptive history. The manna served the dual purpose of teaching the Israelites to trust in God's word for their sustenance in the wilderness, while also pointing to Christ the living word, the bread from heaven in whose word we must trust for our spiritual sustenance. When Christ accomplished his mission, Pentecost marked a new age in the life of the church. If you expect Pentecost to be repeated again and again, that would be to miss the point of Pentecost in redemptive history. In the same way, God bore witness to his gospel through extraordinary sign gifts during the time of Jesus and in the apostolic age those foundational years of the church, but he never meant those revelatory sign gifts to continue endlessly. And yet the same God is very much active, graciously building up his church through other gifts given to the body. Friends, the point I want to make here is that the gifts serve our triune God's redemptive purposes for his church. And that brings us to our third point. What are spiritual gifts for? Spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the church. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each member of the body of Christ, to each individual, God has given. That's the language of grace. He has given the manifestation of the Spirit. The word manifestation means to disclose oneself, to make oneself known. In other words, these gifts are the ways that the Holy Spirit makes himself known. And what is the purpose of these gifts? For the common good. Simferon. For the together advantage. For the benefit of the body. Brothers, spiritual gifts are not given for your personal portfolio. They're not given to give yourself a sense of importance, to show that you are more spiritual or more special than others. No, they're given to you because God the Holy Spirit is working through you for the spiritual building up of Christ's body. You are the body of Christ. His Spirit dwells in you. That's Jesus' M.O., isn't it? He comes to earth. He takes on a body. You are the body of Christ. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. This is how we minister as the body of Christ. This is why it makes zero sense to meet online. God has called us to embodied worship. That's not very Christ-like, is it? Remember, your gifts are not for you. They're for the congregation. And that should be a humbling thing, dear friends. It should be a humbling thing. It ought to be humbling on two levels. It ought to be humbling on two levels. One, it should be humbling because when Jesus said, I will build my church... He meant that he would do it through his people by his spirit. So each one of you has a job to do in each other's lives. It's a tremendous privilege to be a member of a local congregation because it is the will of our God that you labor for the spiritual growth of each other. And that means when you ask someone, how are you doing spiritually? Be prepared to minister to them through your gifts. When we say, how are you doing spiritually? We mean, 
Are you walking in the obedience of faith? We are asking you about your spirit-worked, spirit-enabled obedience to Christ. How is that working out for you in your everyday relationships and your responsibilities? Are you abiding in the words of the Spirit? Are you reading the Word? Are you trusting in it? Are you obeying it? What are those areas in your life where you are finding it hard to trust in God or obey Him? Where are you failing? Are you discouraged or anxious? Are you angry or caught up in serious sin? Are you unrepentant? Or is the joy of the Lord your strength? If we must do all things to the glory of God, then every task is a spiritual one. So talk to a trusted friend today. Share your heart and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will manifest himself through the gifts and the service of this congregation. Here's another reason why we should be humbled. If... If to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, that means we need each other. That means we need each other. We need each other if we are going to make it to glory. We simply cannot do without each other. And here's how you demonstrate that if you believe that. Number one, you show up. You show up when the church gathers. And number two, you acknowledge your need. If you're not being discipled or discipling someone else in the body, friend, do you know you are denying the lordship of Jesus by your actions? Where is your allegiance to the Savior? Where is your love for His church? The wisdom of the world calls out for individual self-expression and personal sovereignty. The wisdom of the cross calls out for humble interdependence and covenantal loyalty. John tells us in 1 John 2.17, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, God in His infinite saving wisdom has gifted you differently. He works differently in different members for a unified purpose. There is a diversity of gifts in one body. And when we labor according to His wisdom, the congregation starts to reflect a Trinitarian glory. So one commentator puts it like this. The eternal God who is characterized by diversity within unity has decreed the same to the people who are to bear God's likeness, the church. See, Paul wants these misguided Corinthians to know this. And so he reminds them about the wonderful ways they had been gifted. Look at verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. The text literally reads the, the logos, or the word of wisdom, or the message of wisdom. And to another, the message of knowledge. In the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, we see that the message of, of wisdom is the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. And so it's most likely that the message of, of wisdom and the message of knowledge are teaching gifts. This is the Spirit-given ability to understand the Scriptures and apply them. I don't think that this gift of knowledge is the receiving of supernatural insight into a person's life. You know, that's more in keeping with prophecy, where God reveals such truths. So think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember the woman at the well that Jesus met in John 4? Jesus says to her, go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right, for you have had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. Do you remember how she interprets this phenomenon? She says, sir, you're tracking me on Facebook, aren't you? Now, that's what, not what she said. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
She understood what prophecy was. Now, before I move on to the next gift, I want you to see that this is not an exhaustive list, but a representative list. It's a sampling. We know that because in Ephesians 4, 11, Paul says, when Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to his church. What were those gifts? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Those offices were the gifts. Those men were the gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he also mentions the gift of helping and administrating. In Romans 12, 6 to 8, he mentions the gift of service, the gift of exhortation, the gift of generosity, the gift of leading, and the gift of mercy. Peter tells us that we ought to be good stewards of these gifts, good stewards of God's varied grace. And so serve one another. So this is not an exhaustive list, it's a sampling. Next, he says in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. This is not saving faith, which every Christian has, but extraordinary faith in difficult circumstances. So think of Daniel, who through faith stopped the mouth of lions. This sort of extraordinary faith is probably associated with healing, like the prayer of faith by the elders over the sick man in James 5.15. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. Notice the repetition of the adjectives, the same spirit, the one spirit. These are not different spirits, even though there are diverse gifts. It is Christ himself at work through his spirit. The gifts of healing is the spirit-given ability bestowed on a person to heal someone of a disease. This gift goes along with the next gift, verse 10, to another gift of miracles or acts of mighty power, or sometimes called wonders. To heal and to do miracles were unique sign gifts that God gave his people during the apostolic age. These are not the kind of gifts that today's charismatic faith healers claim to have, uh, like healing someone's headache or back pain. No, these were extraordinary natural law-bending miracles, like healing the blind, healing leprosy, making the lame walk, raising the dead, casting out demons, the kind of healings and miracles that Jesus did, and, and, and are described for us in Acts 19, verses 11 to 12. Listen to Acts 19, 11 to 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Isn't that incredible? Verse 10, to another prophecy. Prophecy is the communication of God's authoritative and infallible revelation to his people. At times it is spontaneous, and at other times God speaks to his prophet, and his prophet later delivers his word to his people. A prophecy can be a declaration of God's word, a foretelling, or it can be a foretelling, a prediction of something to come. It's not something that men cook up on their own, but God speaks through his servants. This is why prophets in the Old Testament would preface their prophecies with the words, thus saith the Lord. If you look in Acts 21, Agabus, the New Testament prophet, also prefaces his prophecy with the words, thus says the Holy Spirit. Same thing. Some prophecies in the history of redemption were written down, and some were not. So in Elisha's time, he had an entire school of prophets. We don't know what, what they said, because they were not written down for us. There were many things that Jesus said and did that were not written down. John 21, verse 25, I would have loved to have heard that teaching that he gave on the road to Emmaus. Verse 10, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. If prophecy is a revelatory gift given for the building up of the church, this is the spirit-given ability to distinguish between truth and error. And this can function in different ways. So in Acts 16, Paul is able to discern that a slave girl who had an evil spirit, 
even though she was saying true things. So here was a little girl saying true things, but Paul knew she had an evil spirit. He was able to discern. At other times, this gift is used to determine false prophecies, whether someone is a true prophet or a false prophet. So in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18, God tells his people how to know if a prophet is a true prophet or not. If the prophet proclaims a word and it does not come to pass, then Moses says he is a false prophet. That's simple enough, but then it gets complicated. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses says, if the prophet gives you a sign or a wonder and it does come to pass, but then later he says, let us go after other gods and serve them, he is a false prophet. So the true test of prophecy is love, love for God. See, false prophets were to be put to death under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, we are also told to test prophecies. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 10, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. The word that is translated as tongues simply means languages. This is the supernatural ability to communicate God's revelation in a language that is foreign to the speaker, which is why God gave another gift, the gift of interpretation of tongues. So where, this was a gift where either the speaker himself or someone else in the congregation would be able to interpret what was spoken. And when tongues are interpreted or understood, what you have is prophecy. Friends, I hope you can see that this is a stunning list of gifts. God was doing wonderful things in the Corinthian congregation, and it had nothing to do with their culture or their status. Look at verse 11. All these, meaning all these gifts, all these Christ-exalting, body-edifying manifestations of the Spirit, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. So it's not just you, tongue speaker, says Paul. It's not just you who has the Spirit. No, that widow in the congregation who generously contributes to the work of the ministry, she has the Spirit too. One and the same Spirit. And get this, the Spirit who apportions or distributes to each one individually as He wills. The diversity of gifts doesn't mean that there is a diversity of divine purposes no, it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. It is one and the same Spirit. And get this, He gives gifts as He sees fit. Not according to your liking or your preferences, but according to His sovereign will. The church is His body. His body, His choice, right? the sovereign will of the Spirit that determines how He will work through each individual to build up the body of Christ. And brothers and sisters, this ought to do two things for us. This ought to do two things for us. One, it ought to be a great source of comfort and encouragement. It ought to be a source of great comfort and encouragement to us. Why? Because even as we look to our church covenant, and survey our obligations of love towards each other, as we reflect on all those one another commands in Scripture, we can know with certainty that Jesus has not left us to our own devices. He is with us. And God in the person of His Spirit has gifted us for those tasks. Each one of you in ways He sees fit. Brothers and sisters, this is your church. And God has you right where He wants you. And He will enable you to do what He has commanded. Remember that as you serve. Remember that as you teach. Remember that as you give, as you sing, as you play music, as you counsel one another, as you exhort one another, as you read together, as you pray together, as you weep together, as you rejoice together. Every time a brother or sister has a fitting word of encouragement for you, or even correction for you, 
Every time you are brought to see your sin more clearly through the ministry of someone else, every time you are brought to love Jesus more, know that Jesus is keeping His promise. Jesus is keeping His promise. He is with you always. Look at the many ways you have been ministered to by His Spirit-filled, Spirit-gifted saints. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, wrote, You, the saints redeemed by blood, have a right to all this in its fullest sense. Drink into it and be filled with courage. Do not say we can do nothing. Who are ye that can do nothing? God is with you. Do not say the church is feeble and fallen upon evil times. Nay, God is with us. Beloved, be still and know that God is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So stand your ground against the winds of cultural change and strive to build up one another in love. Preach the gospel and let your eyes be fixed on eternal glory. Here's the second way, verse 11, ought to minister to you. The Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as He wills. God knows what His body needs for edification. He knows how to manifest Himself, to whom to minister through. You do not need to now agonize over what your spiritual gift is. You don't have to take a spiritual gift inventory test. You already know what the purpose of these gifts are. They are for the common good, for the spiritual growth of the church. So look at what the Lord has called you to do and do it. Look for opportunities, look for needs in the body, and make prayerful efforts to serve. Look, pray, and say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know if I will be particularly good at counseling this grieving brother or ministering to this anxious sister. Lord, I don't know if I'm up to this task. But I do know that I have your word and your spirit. So help me. Help me, Lord. And then go and serve. Beloved, here's a useful exercise for you. Go back home and in your quiet time, go through the membership directory. Look at each face carefully. And think about who has ministered to you in your time of physical or spiritual need. Make a note of it. Make a list. And it will slowly become apparent to you what the gifts of these dear members are. See, I don't think any of our members are walking around thinking, I believe this is my spiritual gift. This is my speciality. If you need help, call me. Frankly, I don't think anyone has a clue. But I can tell you this, their gifts are apparent to others. There are people here who are gifted administrators, encouragers, teachers, exhorters, generous givers, counselors, those who do acts of mercy, those who tirelessly serve. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit is powerfully at work. Others can see it. And if you can see the ways that they have ministered to you spiritually? Would you say a prayer of thanks for them? And then call them and thank them for the ways they have built you up? So what goes through your mind when someone in the church asks you, how are you doing spiritually? Have you asked anyone this question recently? Well, maybe it's time you should. And may the Holy Spirit help you. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who abides with us so that we might bear much fruit in ministry. Help us minister to one another in the strength that you have given. 
and with the gifts that you have given. Help us run this race with endurance, knowing that the outcome is secure in Jesus Christ. May we remember that our labors will not be in vain. Help us speak to unbelievers about Christ. And help us remind one another about the gospel. And may we grow in our love for our Savior and for one another. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.